Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Although he initially made his name in the British jazz scene, Malcolm Cecil was a key figure in the development of the synthesizer, and his best-known work was made in collaboration with Soul Legends. As part of Tonto's expanding headband, Cecil released two albums of highly original music in 1971 and 1972. The name was an acronym of an analog synth designed and built by Cecil himself. A dazzled Stevie Wonder instantly recruited Cecil and fellow Tonto member Robert Margoloff to his cause, making them co-producers on a series of classic albums that included Music of My Mind. In his 2013 Red Bull Music Academy lecture, Cecil talked about creating Tonto, working with Stevie, and much more. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit. Of couch wisdom. Now this wonderfully soothing recording that we just heard, which just happens to be here in a sealed copy. <laughs> this is the David Letterman moment. Um, <laughs> it's actually not that easy to find, so um, that doesn't really help. But um, what have we been listening to right there? Uh, the last piece that you heard was called Laser Ballet. Um, this was an album that I did right after I left Stevie Wonder. <laughs> and the Isley Brothers and Minnie Ripperton and all of the heavy R&B music. And I was what I call boinged out. Um, You know, the bass... That's not a word they teach you in German English classes. Okay. (laughs) I don't think they teach it in any class. What it really means is that um, the main use that the synthesizer was put to uh, in most R&B, the primary use was as the bass. We also used it many other instruments, but and we also used it to process the clavinet for Stevie. Uh, but in general, the, the real uh, essence of the, that makes the difference, I believe, between a lot of the material we put out and the material that came before was the low end, it was the bass, the capability that um, the synthesizer has of producing incredibly beautiful bass sounds. And as an acoustic bass player, an upright bass player, I really appreciated that. And uh, it was something that was very important uh, in the formulation of the music because it gave the whole flavor to the music. Uh, And so the concept of having uh, the ability to change the bass sound so drastically from something very soft and gentle to something which was really powerful, like a lead volleyball bouncing down the room, you know, uh, really heavy-duty bass. Um, and most of the stuff with the R&B was of the lead volleyball type. And that was what I meant when I said boinged out. After a while, you hear these sounds, and you get to a point when you're programming the synthesizer, you can't hear anymore. You, you don't know what you're doing anymore. It, it, you lose complete objectivity. And so you have to step back. And at that point, um, my ex-partner, Bob Margleff, and I uh, created the phase boinged out. And one would time I would turn to him or he would turn to me and say, I'm boinged out. And that meant we had to take a break. So, <laughs> um, I was pretty well boinged out with the whole lead volleyball bass thing. Wonderful as it is, uh, anything, if you do it long enough, uh, it, gets to be, uh, it gets to be wearing. So I was desperate to try and come up with something 
softer and gentler and show that the synthesizer could be used for something other than just, you know, powerful bass lines uh, and the occasional lead line. Um, I felt that it was a, a true instrument. And in fact, um, that was my attraction to the instrument and why I started building uh, Tonto, the original new timbral orchestra, because I felt that an orchestra of synthesizers would be absolutely phenomenal. And I had for many years wanted to experiment with sounds that I couldn't get musicians to play. Time signatures was one of the things I couldn't get many musicians to play the time signatures I wanted to play. Um, Johnny McLaughlin was the only guy in England that sort of saw things the way I saw them. And we played together. In fact, the last gig I did on bass uh, was at the Edinburgh Festival with Johnny McLaughlin as a trio. And uh, Pete Brown, the uh, lyricist from Cream, um, he was a poet, actually. And um, he used to hang out and do jazz and poetry. And so he used to hang out with the, the, the weirdos, which was John McLaughlin, myself, and a few other of the younger jazz musicians at the time in London, uh, who were looking for something new and different. And we were trying to break away and not follow the, you know, not, not be just like following the American lead, although that was important because jazz is, after all, an American art form. And that's what we were playing. But we wanted to have something, bring something different to it. And one of the things we discussed greatly was theory of vibrations and so on. And we, John and I, were very much into vibrations um, and how they blended together, um, the harmonics and cycle of fifths and so on and so forth. Um, and we were also uh, realized that if you slowed down vibrations enough, uh, you go below the limit of hearing, and if you make the vibration such as you can hear it, in other words, not a sine wave because that's smooth, there's no edge, but if you make it a, a pulse or a, something with a leading edge, you start to get tempo. Slows down below 20 cycles, your ears start to drop away now, your body starts to pick it up, and it becomes tempo. So the concept that we had with time and everything was, well, why wouldn't, you'd be able to play like harmonies in rhythm. And the first obvious harmony was already staring us in the face and was the underlying backpinning of jazz, underpinning of jazz, which is two against three. Well, that's like the second and third harmonic beating together. Now, theory of vibrations will tell you that you get the sum and the difference. That means you'll get one and you'll get four. Well, one is the fundamental, four is two octaves above the two, which is the octave above the fundamental. And you now have the three is the fifth. So you have uh, a complete one, two, three, four. Um, the first four harmonics. Now, if you actually do that rhythmically, you get that very, very uh, well, well known. You want to hold this for a second? You get that, it goes. One, two, three, one, two. Well, good to go. That's very African. It's very rhythmic. It's the basis of jazz. A lot of jazz is built on that two against three. But that's harmonics slowed down. So we decided, well, what if you did the five, too? What if you slowed the fifth harmonic, which is the third? And we found that that worked, too. 
And to this day, I don't, I, I still play jazz once a week because on upright bass because I keep my fingers in, I've got to keep my ear in, I've got to keep playing. And I've got to keep in touch with the roots, the basic instrument, four strings and a piece of wood. Uh, you know, there's nothing more basic than that. Doesn't matter if the power goes out, I can still play. Uh, in fact, one of my fantasies was to have a live performance where right in the middle of the performance, everything went out, including the exit lights. And then sort of, you just hear the bass come through. <laughs> then people realize they've been fooled. And <laughs> but uh, it never came to, came to be, it was just an idea. But the concept here was uh, to create uh, a, a rhythmic major chord, one, three, five, which is one, three, five, first, third, and fifth harmonic. And that major chord, then should sound good rhythmically. And as I say, I play, when I'm playing jazz waltzes, I'll play five across it. And the guys I'm playing with now know what I'm doing. At first, they used to think I was trying to play six and missing. But uh, <laughs> when I explained to them, no, no, you just stay where you are. And I wrote a piece called three, four, 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 five, four. What for and why for, I don't know. But that was the, the, the general idea. Um, and I have the drummer playing in 4-4, four, four, the piano player playing in 3-4, and I play in 5-4 because nobody else could do it. So, But that was the problem we had with John McLaughlin. We were playing things in 21-8. Sound complicated? Uh-uh. No, no. Can you count to three? All right. You do three measures of 3-4 and a half a measure of 3-4. Yes, I did say a half a measure. <clears throat> i.e. 3-8. <clears throat> one and a half beats. So it goes one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, one and a one, two, three, two, two, three, three, two, three, one and a one, two, three, two, two, three, two, three, one and a it's twenty one eight. Doesn't sound bad, does it? Johnny and I wrote a piece in twenty one eight and played it at the Edinburgh Festival. But that was part of the thing. Um, it wasn't until I came to America and uh, some years later that I was uh, introduced to the Moog synthesizer and realized that this was an instrument in which I could do anything I wanted to, anything, any concept that I came up with. So I started experimenting with putting the sequences into 7-4 time and playing against them, and I got it so that I could actually feel 7-4. Until then, I couldn't get anybody to play it long enough or often enough for me to get into it to get a feel for it. And I think this was also true of people like Dave Brubeck with his Take 5, and later on, the Rondo a la Turk. Dave Brubeck was into experimenting with different time signatures. But that was the motivation for me to get into Synthesizer, was not just that it could play different time signatures, but that it could come up with sounds that just were never anything you heard before. And um, the opportunity to actually play with a synthesizer occurred a year after I came to the States. I'd had a little brief inkling that there was such a thing as a Moog synthesizer. I'd seen the credit on the Beatles records, The Wall, and I listened to The Wall and it didn't sound a lot like anything I really wanted to do, but it did have some interesting things in it, but it was sort of a bit I don't know, it, it didn't have any forms in the music. It was interesting stuff, but it, I got the impression they were just like recording, running the tape and playing with the knobs and seeing what came out. 
And that's pretty well what I ended up doing when I ran into the first synthesizer, which was in media sound. I'd been in the States by then for a year. Um, I don't know how much history you want before that. There's a lot of that. And, um, <laughs> but I think before we get into that, um, there's two things that strike me about this in particular and that people find probably a little difficult when they listen to um, non-per-se dance music is A, how to rhythmically organize it, and B, you hinted that um, this particular piece or this particular album was also used to be the the basis for poetry and spoken word as well. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, yeah. Um, one of the reasons why this album is not out there, and I didn't push it out there in, in a way to sort of promote myself, this was after I broke up with Stevie and my partner, Bob Margolef, at the time, um, and I ended up with the synthesizer, and, uh, which I still have. It's alive and well, and living in upstate New York with me, in about 10 miles from Woodstock. Um, but the, uh, this particular piece, set of pieces, as I say, were originally done as a sort of a therapy thing for me to get away from the, uh, the lead volleyball <coughs> type bass lines. You'll notice that in this particular record, there are no bass lines like that at all. And every time I tried, got, got into going to do that, uh, there was a, a doctor um, who was uh, a friend of mine. Uh, we called him uh, Dr. Jim Levin. Um, and he was uh, very into uh, uh, fine art and music and everything. He was very supportive. And he would come down to the studio and just hang out there and would lay down on the couch. And every time I would go to a bass sound and start playing, he would call, no lead volleyballs. <laughs> yeah, I understand, right? In a sense, he was my therapist, I suppose. You know, it was never officially that, but <laughs> that's sort of the role. Well, um, during that time, the record company that I was making this record for uh, was called Unity Records. And they got a call from one Muhammad Ali, Uh, who called them up because of their name and said, I have these spoken word uh, pieces that I've been putting together and they were to do with his um, training in uh, the Muslim faith um, and he just wanted to record them and put them out and he thought that he would find a record company that uh, was the appropriate name and he found Unity Records in the record, and he just called them up because of their name. And, um, of course, Peter Georgie, who was the president of Unity Records, called me and said, I've got this thing with Muhammad Ali, would you produce it for me? Because, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you know how to do this stuff. Hopefully you'll, you'll be able to uh, help me out with this. So I agreed to do that. And we went into the studio and recorded five lectures. Um, each of them, they varied from 12 minutes to about 30 minutes in length. Um, and uh, the purpose of life, uh, the tragedy of life, heart, um, and uh, God, and prayer. They were, that was what they were about. And um, I thought they were worthwhile things. And it so happened that he did one version of one of the lectures called God. And I was 
gave him a copy on a cassette of the lecture, which I'd edited all the ums and ahs out, because he was just losing his speech at that time. He knew he had Parkinson's. That's why there was a little bit of urgency about it. His speech was just becoming slurred. They wanted to catch it before he couldn't speak anymore. And um, so we had the... Uh, had these sessions and everything, and I, I gave him this cassette, and I put this music behind it because it seemed like it fitted to me. And he flipped. He thought it was wonderful. He said, oh, this is great. Uh, you've got to put it out this way. Well, unfortunately, Unity went bankrupt, and then a series of um, unfortunate events happened after that, which prevented this record from coming out. Um, and it was going to come out... Uh, I'd almost got... I've been trying to work on this for 30 years, but about 15 years ago, I was almost got it through uh, and crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, and then, of course, 9-11 happened. And the record company got cold feet and said, no, we can't put anything like this out about Muslim people. And I said, but it's Muhammad Ali. And they said, don't care. It doesn't matter who it is. The, not the climate right now. <laughs> so, so it went back into mothballs. Um, I'm still trying to get that released, and I wanted to hold this record, not have it out there on its own, because I didn't want it to appear like we had put the music, you know, he'd just done it over that record. Mm. Um, so it never got released. So, I, However, the, the first pressing, um, as I said, the record company went bankrupt. I bought out the whole stock of the pressings. So I brought a few with me today. So <laughs> uh, probably not enough for everybody, but if you uh, if you do want to get one I, and, and there aren't enough to go around, I will take your name and number and send one to you. But that's what that's the story behind the story. Wow. Um. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's that's the bit we should keep off the video and off eBay and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But um, I'm really curious because I mean, obviously um, Ali at the time. I mean, many would argue that he was really instrumental in developing what was later known to be the art form of being an MC, and he has this beautiful cadence in his speech and all and. Um, there's so much rhythm in there, how, and it's probably an issue a lot of people face in their daily production work. How, how do you work with or against that rhythm of what you have in a vocal track? Well, the rhythm of the vocal track, uh, in terms of when it's a spoken word, it's very easy because really there is no, there's no real important cadences that are necessary. All you have to do is put the, put it, make it so that the, then it makes sense and. Without the music, what we found was it sounded a little disjointed. And you heard all the page turnings, and you heard all the breathing, and it was just a little, a little awkward in the sense that when, when, when you just got, like now, there's, there's nothing else going on. Um, but sometimes there are pauses. You know, I'll pause and I'll try not to do that too much because I feel like a fish out of water. But the, when there is a, a gap, it can be filled with something. Usually the gaps in conversation are filled with music. This happens in jazz when you, these days jazz is only played, as far as I can tell, on the concert hall where everybody comes and 
just sits quietly and listens and very polite and applauds, or it's in very noisy environments like bars and restaurants, uh, where it literally is background music. When the conversation stops, the music takes over, and so there's no awkwardness. And when you're dealing with spoken word, it's relatively easy to find those places. And when you've got... you, You can stop... You can you can phrase the you know the the spoken word in with the music, even though it has its own uh, rhythm. Uh, they usually don't conflict. I've never found I didn't find it to be conflicting at all with particular pieces that I did with with Muhammad, because you're focusing on him anyway, and the music just acts just like it would in a uh, in a restaurant or a bar as as the. Uh, carrying it through the, the little silences and awkwardnesses and covering, more, more importantly, it was covering over the imperfections in the original recording, which was, you know, very often you can't get him to do it again. He comes in, he sits down, he does it, and uh, he's not uh, the sort of person that you can say, uh, yeah, um, uh, that, that was very good, but could you say it again with a little more emphasis on the third word? Or uh, He's not going to respond to that. <laughs> you know, if you were in the ring and you said to him, you know, yeah, yeah, well, just, just uh, hunker down a little bit and then hit him with the left, you know, <laughs> then <laughs> you could expect him to comply. But I think when it comes to making records or speaking in a certain way, uh, there, wasn't, we, there was no attempt made to regulate him. We just called him wild, and then I just put it together as best I could. And the thing that got edited was the vocal, the thing that got moved, if anything got moved, because you can't really move the music. So the only thing you can move are the phrases. Now, seeing that, as you earlier said, it's a room full of very smart people, they by now have figured out that your accent is not exactly American. Nevertheless, <laughs> um, the first entry in your discography is a pretty... Um, quintessential American recording and we wondered what your role in that one was. I spent probably uh, a considerable amount of time each year working for Crescendo Records, GMP Crescendo, that's Gene Norman presents. Uh, Gene Norman is the president of the label. It's a family label. His son, Neil Norman, is also uh, is, is now running the label. Gene is in his late 80s. Um, he's in so-so health, uh, but for his age, he's doing quite well. Um, but he uh, employed me to, in, in the uh, capacity of archivist, to be in charge of looking through his library of um, recordings. My job was to come up with tapes that had been stashed in there that had never come to light. And this was easy to do because he was also a promoter, a concert promoter, and he also opened a club called the Crescendo Club specifically for the Stan Kenton Band. Crescendo is the Kenton label. Stan Kenton and Crescendo are like synonymous. Um, and he recorded being... A, he was a radio personality in the 40s, and he had a radio program five nights a week and a television program uh, five nights a week when there were only four TV stations in L.A. So he was very famous and very rich. And he opened this club uh, called The Crescendo on Sunset Boulevard specifically to present um, Stan Kenton because there was nowhere other than concert stages for the band to play when they went to L.A. And that was the motivation for him to open the club. Um, so... He, record, he being a radio guy, 
um, whenever he did concerts and promotions, he would record them. Now, in the old days, this is a bit of history, in the 30s, before tape machines, now, tape machines were invented in Germany. They were invented by Telefunken and uh, were only discovered by the Allied forces when they um, broke into uh, the bunker that Hitler and Eva Braun were uh, supposedly staying in, and they came across this weird-looking thing, and they didn't know what it was. They eventually discovered it was a tape machine. And the thing about tape machines is that you can't hear the surface noise that you can hear on a disc, and it's very audible. But prior to tape machines, all recordings were done on disc, and that included recordings for broadcasts. And there were two ways of recording on a disc. You can record mono, this is, you can record you waggling the needle laterally, okay, left to right, and that works quite well. And you can also record waggling the needle vertically. That's called hill and dale recording. And that also works quite good, but of course uh, you have problems that show up when you have large amplitudes. When it's left and right, the large amplitudes will tend to cut into the, the groove you just cut, unless you open up the grooves of revolution before, which requires quite a bit of engineering expertise, and um, it's not easy to do, uh, unless you have a tape machine, of course. Uh, but prior to tape machines, no way. So uh, we had no uh, capability of knowing uh, up front whether there was going to be a loud level that would cut into the previous uh, groove that you just cut. In other words, the needle's going like this. You have to open up one revolution ahead for it not to cause an intercut. Um, as I say, before tape machines, there was no way to do that. There was no way of time delaying. There was no way of seeing what's going to come next. Um, but the radio people could use that method, but they'd have to use a very wide pitch to prevent that from happening on the fly, and so you didn't get very much recording time. It ate space like mad. Whereas with Hill and Dale recording, there wasn't that problem. You could pack the grooves right up against each other, and they would go up and down. Now, the only problem is, of course, if you went too loud, you'd throw the needle up out of the groove and it would jump out, or it would go down into the aluminum, because lacquers, which is what they were in those days, just paint on an aluminum disc. So... The radio people, however, decided, at least with this, we can record a fixed amount of time. We can tell how much time we can record, and if we do it at a relatively low level, we'll be able to record a complete half-an-hour broadcast. And this they were able to do with 33 and a third microgroove recording with closely packed grooves that didn't move from side to side but just moved up and down. So this was the method. But the trouble was, you heard all the clicks and pops. With tape, you didn't hear that. And the upshoot of all of that was after the Second World War, um, the tape machines be were, began to be manufactured in the States. Now, the two people who uh, were part of the uh, intelligence team from the US and Allied forces that uh, discovered the machines in the bunker there and later found out what they did and how they worked ended up being the uh, founders of Ampex and 3M Corporation. Uh, Colonel Ranger was the 3M guy, and I've forgotten the name, AM somebody, 
Pexman or something, I can't remember the guy's name, but uh, the guy who, who did Ampex, um, he went with the traditional single friction driven puck, whereas Colonel Ranger came up with what he called Isoloop, which was a surrogated puck that had two different diameters and created an isolated loop to go around the tape heads. Anyhow, this was all part of the uh, situation. So the radio recorders were uh, a company that recorded all types of uh, broadcasts from, they had telephone lines, ordinary standard telephone lines, and they were 600 ohm termination balance lines. You've seen 600 ohm balance lines, that's where they started. And you can feed 600 ohm balance lines thousands of miles, you can feed it across the country. And they had high quality telephone lines fixed to every one of these venues. So when Gene Norman, who's an old radio man who knew about recording, he would call up radio recorders and say, I'm putting on a concert at the Shrine Auditorium tonight. I want you to record it. Now, you can't take a lathe, a cutting lathe, to the Shrine Auditorium. Okay? They're not portable. They've got to be on a two-ton block of concrete that's floated so that it doesn't get the tra traffic noise, doesn't get any vibration, so and so. You can't move those things. So you bring the sound to it with the telephone lines. And Gene Norman did exactly this with these concerts. So he has all of these tapes. Many of them never been played since the day they came from radio recorders. They were just sent over. And the guy at radio recorders didn't know who was on the tape. What it was, unless he was listening, and most of them weren't. They probably used two or three lathes because you had to have a backup in case there was a problem technically. And so Gene Norman would ship the, these, uh, record his concerts this way. And all you'd find would be a disc, which would be a 15-inch disc. You couldn't play on a normal player anyway. Uh, and uh, it would just say, uh, American Festival of Jazz 1957. Side one. No indication of who was on it, what it was. So my job was to go through these discs. And later, when they went to tape, they still put the tape machine, the radio recorders, they didn't take the tape machine to the, to the Shrine or the Pasadena Civic or anywhere. They still did it the same way, but they substituted tape machines for the lathes. So Gene Norman religiously recorded all these concerts. I'm going through these tapes and I'm listening to some of the concert tapes. I didn't do too much with the discs, although uh, I was going through them. It was much more difficult to retrieve from disc. But the, the, lay, the, the, the tapes were pretty good. So I was going through these tapes, and I came across one, uh, American Festival of Jazz, 1957. I thought, oh, maybe this is Stan Kenton. I put it on, and it's Gene Norman introducing Miles Davis Quintet at the Pasadena Civic 1957, uh, the only live recording that that original quintet made, that's with John Coltrane uh, on tenor saxophone, Red Garland on piano, uh, Philly Joe Jones on drums, and uh, of course the ubiquitous Paul Chambers on bass. Um, but the, 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 there are no other live recordings of that group. And so, I said to Gene Norman, I found some gold here. I, thought, I, think, I think we're sitting on gold. And he, I said, we can release this. This is 1957. So he says, no, nope, we can't release it. I said, what do you mean we can't release it? He said, the, we don't own the rights. I said, how, how do you mean you don't own the rights? You put on the concert, 
you paid for the recording, you paid the band, it belongs, surely this tapes belong to you, you can release them. He said, no. He said, you don't understand. Record contracts with artists are exclusive. Doesn't matter who records them, where, all that matters is when. If it is during the period of the contract, guess who owns the rights? The record company who signed the artist. End of story. He said, there's no way we can release this. I said, well, who owns the rights? He says, if you can find that out, maybe we've got a chance. So I went through all the old books. I found out that he was signed to CBS at the time. Fortunately, Gene, who knows everybody in the business, was able to do a deal with, with CBS. And they literally bought the tapes from Gene Norman uh, for a flat fee, something around 50 grand, and some... Uh, small royalty that's still being paid. Um, but the bottom line of it is that uh, they put it out, they re-released the album that that group made in 1957 called Round About Midnight, which is what you heard at the beginning here. And uh, they put a second disc out, which was the 30-minute concert that um, I found and uh, that I restored. And so uh, that, that's why that's... It's probably because it's most recent, the, the big ones. <laughs> it's the top of the list. <laughs> but Miles is probably one of the biggest artists I've ever uh, had the pleasure to be remotely involved with. But I didn't record it. <laughs> Did you personally I, meet him? Oh, yes. Miles and I... Um, in fact, my second uh, child was called Miles uh, because my wife was pregnant with him at the time when I toured with Miles Davis Quintet. I was in the band that opened for him called the Jazz Five and uh, we played um, the first set and Miles played the second set. That was a six-week tour of England. It was the first time a full American jazz group had come to England and I just got out of the Air Force in time to do that gig which was fantastic. And um, I got very friendly with Paul Chambers. And Miles turns out to be a really nice guy, actually. All, the, all this turning his back and being, you know, obtuse. That's all a big publicity thing, you know. He's actually a really nice guy. And the first day at rehearsal, he had Fran, uh, his wife. I had my wife, Polly. And she's pregnant. Fran's pregnant. Miles comes over to me and says, that your wife? <laughs> Yeah, he grabs her hand, come with me, takes her over. This is Fran, this is Polly. You guys stick together. <laughs> so yeah, I never actually played with him. Um, I'd love to have, but um, I played opposite him, on the, as I say, and uh, had a personal relationship with him, which was excellent. I'm a little bit in between two minds here because um, just looking at the discography as such, there's people on there like the Isley Brothers, Van Dyke Park, Stone Bass, the Tonto albums as such, which are um, a topic of delight amongst collectors and um, synthesizers, uh, aficionados. But, and also a lot of the Stevie stuff, obviously, we could talk about for days and some of that is pretty well documented what we don't get to hear too much about is your work with another gentleman so i had a studio in santa monica that i had moved tonto into um after uh, the breakup with um, bob and stevie wonder um i moved out of uh, uh, the studio we had in uh, point doom in malibu 
where we recorded with Stevie, Weather Report, Billy Preston, lots of people. Um, and I moved into a shop front in Santa Monica, thousand square foot shop front, and turned it into a recording studio. Eventually took the store, the shop next door, and that was 2,000 square feet, which still wasn't really enough, but we managed. Um, and one day um, I was there, the front door of the shop was open and it was, we didn't have any air conditioning. So we, were, we had the, the, the door open, it was a hot day. And this very tall black gentleman put his head into the studio. Oh, it's a recording studio here. I said, yes, yeah. can I come in and have a look? So I said, yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, he says, I live just around the corner. I didn't know there was a recording studio here, so we just moved here. Oh, looks great. Oh, you've got this big synthesizer. So it turned out the name of the man was Tom Wilson. Not the Tom Wilson from the Beach Boys. The Tom Wilson who was the CBS producer uh, who produced Bob Dylan. Um, he was a very, uh, very interesting, very intellectual guy. And he said, uh, I have this musical called Gondwana that I need to record. And uh, it's a spec project, but, uh, you know, uh, I can cut you in and da-da-da-da. Well, cut a long story short, I went for it. And we, um, we started to cut <coughs> these tunes. And he turned around to me after we'd done 40 songs. And he turned around to me and he said, you know what? He said, I need to bring you some paying work in here. He said, um, I've got an album coming up for Arista Records. Um, Clive Davis had just started up Arista. What happened was Clive Davis got caught, uh, or at least the, the, the whole company, CBS, got caught. And you, you heard about the Coca-Cola scam. Do you know about that? The, the Coca-Cola scandal. What was happening was that um, the CBS were putting Coke into little packages of Coke into the, uh, the, the um, records they were sending to DJs uh, to get them to play the records. <laughs> It's true. Uh, it all came out, um, and Clive Davis stepped up to the plate and said, I'm guilty, it's my fault, I'll take the responsibility, I'll take the blame. And for doing that, he got fired from CBS, but they gave him $20 million to start Arista. So, you know, what, <laughs> what can I tell you? Uh, <laughs> money talks, nobody walks. Um, anyhow, um, he decided... Uh, he being, uh, of course, Clive Davis, decided that uh, he needed a, a black act on the label. And so he signed Gil Scott Heron. And who would he put to produce it but his old producer who had produced Dylan very successfully for CBS uh, for him, but, but Tom Wilson. So Tom brought Gil in to do the session and came in on the first day and was sitting down there and Tom had a very interesting style of production uh, very interesting he would sit there put his feet up on the console open up the Financial Times and that was it that's all you'd see you know we so first day we we're recording we start recording this thing called hello Sunday hello road Let's get to about take five uh, I think it's a pretty good one so I turn around to Tom and say what do you think Tom I'll let you know if there's anything wrong. That was his style of production. Let everybody do it. And his idea was that nothing makes the farm grow like the eye of the farmer. You just have to be in the room. 
You don't have to do anything. If everything is going well, leave it alone. Let it happen. <laughs> so that was how I met Gil. But the story didn't quite finish there. Um, halfway through the album, one day, uh, Dion, my uh, assistant, our habit was we would do a song. The, as soon as we got a take and everything was fine, Tom would leave the studio and say, OK, do a mix of it and send it around to me. Do a rough and send it around to, to me. So Dion would go around with a cassette with the rough mix on it to Tom's house, which was a block and a half away. Well, this particular morning, Tom didn't show. Very unusual. Tom was always there first. So we go through, we get halfway through the session and there's still no Tom. So both Gil and I are getting a little uneasy. So I say to Dion, Dion, run round to Tom's house, make sure everything's all right, make sure he's okay. So Dion goes round. Now Dion came to me because he walked in when I was building the studio and I was building the ceiling, which is a gullwing ceiling, and I needed somebody to hold up the thing while I fixed it. And Dion is like six foot four, very long limbs, and he just happened to walk in the door. He was this Dutch guy, and he just, I don't know, I don't know where he came from. He just walked in the door. And I just turned around and said, excuse me, could you just hold... That's how he started. He never left. <laughs> he became my assistant. <laughs> very, very nice guy. Um, and uh, so he went around. And the reason I told you that is because he goes to the room and gets no reply. So being tall, but he had to be fairly tall to look through the window. So he climbs up onto the railing and looks through the window, sees Tom lying on the floor. So he comes back to the studio and tells us, so Gil and I go around. Well, Gil is about the same size as Dion, you know, six foot ten, sort of, you know, that, in that region. Gil's a basketball player. And so between the two of them, they managed to get into the window. I think Gil hoisted Dion up and Dion climbed in. Then we got in and we got Tom to the hospital. It turned out that he had had a problem, a heart problem. And uh, he had to go in and have an operation. So whole album came to a grinding halt at that point. Uh, Tom got out of hospital a couple of months later. We went back to work. Three weeks later, same thing happens, only this time with not such a good result. This time, unfortunately, uh, Tom was dead. Uh, his aorta had burst. And that was it. So here we are with a half-finished album. And Gil turns to me and says, hey, man, will you help me produce and finish this album? So I said, of course. And that's how I came to produce Gil. And we stayed together. We did, I think, 15 albums together. And we were together for about 22 years. Um, <clears throat> and we went through all sorts of uh, changes. We did the um, Stevie Wonder, Hotter Than July Tour, 1980, where um, Gil had the brilliant idea on the... Well, because Gil was booked on that because Bob Marley couldn't make it. Bob Marley was supposed to open for Stevie, and he couldn't make it. So uh, Gil got called to do that, uh, the opening, but it was supposed to be only for the first few shows until Bob Marley was better, or he never did get better. But um, <clears throat> we, we ended up doing the whole tour. But on the first night, we were in Austin, Texas, and we went up in Stevie's dressing room, and Gil and Stevie and myself and, and a couple of other producer of the show and so on, we were talking about how we were going to do the last number, what we were going to do. So we decided that 
Gil came up with this idea. He said, you know what? It's going to be Martin Luther King's birthday. We should do Happy Birthday to You, because Stevie had already written Happy Birthday to You, Martin Luther King. And he said, you know what? We should exhort everybody to write to their congressman and see if we can't get Martin Luther King Day accepted as a national holiday. You know, that would be something really worthwhile. And Stevie caught to this idea right away. Yeah, man, yeah, let's do that, let's do that. So that became what we were going to do at the, the end of the show. That was the song that Gil got called back up to work with Stevie at the end of the performance every, every show. And Gil would get up there and he would exhort everybody to go write their congressman uh, to make Martin Luther King Day a national holiday. And... Uh, that continued. That we, we ended up doing the whole uh, 1980 tour, which did take most of 1980. It wasn't continuous, but it was like fits and starts, six weeks here, four weeks there, you know, different areas of the country. We would fly there and then go from, by coach and then get back on the plane and fly back from whence we came. Um, and it was a very uh, powerful experience for everybody because it went on. Gil then went on to organise with Stevie uh, all of the black artists, musicians, entertainers, uh, started with the Motown team uh, through Stevie and, and Gil, and we ended up getting all sorts of people involved, and four years later, the law was passed and it became a national holiday, even though ten years prior to that, ten years in a row, it had been brought up in Congress and failed ten years in a row. And... Um, this was this was an amazing uh, accomplishment that was done through music and through the dedication of musicians who felt more thought more about music was more valuable than just love songs. There's so many, so much of music is love songs. So much of music is about interpersonal relationships. But I've always been a proponent of social consciousness. And I believe that social consciousness can be promoted through music and great achievements can be done. Music isn't all about making a million dollars or billions of dollars or selling lots of records or being famous. It's about changing the world. It's about making the world a better place to live in, not just for you and those around you, but for everybody. But everybody who comes within the sound. I've been amazed at the number of people who've come up to me, because you, you never know your effect upon other people. Very rarely, how often does one get to know one's effect upon other people? My wife Polly had a, 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 a uh, yoga teacher. She does Iyengar yoga. And she, she had a yoga teacher who was from France, um, from a very well-to-do family in France. And um, Gil had a write-up write in a French magazine very esoteric French magazine. Now, I know schoolboy French. I mean, I have ordinary level French GCE to, to get my matriculation to get into the Polytechnic. But I couldn't understand one in ten words of this article. I mean, I didn't even start. So I said to Polly, why don't you get Fenech to come down to the studio one day after the yoga, Fenegla to come down and just read the article and translate it on the fly and I'll set up a mic and a cassette and then Gil can hear the article. So Polly brings Fanet down one day, out of the blue, which just appears at the studio with Fanet. So I'm getting ready, I'm getting the mic set up and everything, and Fanet's looking at the gold records on the wall. And she gets the talking book, 
And she goes, oh, my God, oh, my God, you did Talking Book. Oh, my God, that record changed my life. I go, huh? She then tells me the story. She'd been in the West Indies. She had fallen in love with and had two children with a West Indian man that she was deeply in love with. And everything was fine because she was from a well-heeled French family, a French aristocratic family. And so there was no problems until her father found out that the children were not 100% white and cut her off, cut all her payments off, everything. She said, that's it. You're on your own. And the only thing she could do to make money was teach yoga. So she was teaching yoga in the hotels in Jamaica and trying to make ends meet. Well, the husband didn't stay around very long when there was no money around. And so she was left with these two children to support. And she said that the only thing that got her up and through the day, every day, was putting on talking book first thing in the morning. Every time when she got up, she said, I put that record up on and it got me through the day. So you never know your effect upon other people and it, 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 it's very rare to ever find it out. But when you realise things like that are going on, how many other people's lives have been touched by the products that I've been involved with? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. But I know that there are people out there who have been touched by it and have been touched by some of the social consciousness things that we did. I mean, living for the city was no joke. Living for the city was the breakup of Stevie and I because it was the first time that Stevie really realised he was actually being produced, which is what he hated. That's what he left Motown because of. And as soon as he found out and realised that we'd actually been producing him all this time, I, I mean, he, he was under the impression that he was doing it all, which was the whole idea. That's really what you want to do. But it works against you if you use that technique. It's a production technique that I used with Stevie, I've used with a lot of art. It worked with Gil, because Gil understood it, and Gil appreciated it, and Gil listened and did everything I asked him to do. But with Stevie, as soon as he realised that I was actually, quote, producing him, when I started to stop that tape machine, never done it before, but I started actually taking charge in the control room and saying, no, do this, do that, that, that. Strands of the old Motown came right back into his head and he's like, uh-uh, nope, I'm not having this. And that was the beginning of the end of Stevie and I. That's why, in the end, it really, that's really what broke it up. You can look at money, you can look at business, you can look at all other aspects. That was what it was. He did not want to be produced, even though it made better product. <coughs> and I only say that not out of... Uh, not out of ego. I'm saying that because so many people have told me, and I've read in so many different articles, people I don't know, and people, writers who I've never met, who have no axe no to grind with them, they've got no reason to support, all seem to concur that the albums that we did together, those first for those Music of My Mind, Talking Book, Innovisions, Fulfilling This First Finale, those are the albums which were the seminal albums that everybody talks about of Stevie's. It also took him three years to produce an album after we left. We produced four albums in as, as many years, two albums with Sarita, three albums with the Isley Brothers. Joan, I mean, it goes on and on and on, the number of albums we produced. The, 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 the getting it done part of it, the production part, <coughs> was being done. But 
when we left, there was nobody who, to fill in that, that gap, nobody to book the studio, nobody to ride herd on Stevie and say, hey man, it's going over the top. I like the other take. There was one case in point where we did, we filled up the whole tape with vocal overdubs and it was time to go back and overdub because Stevie had done a, a vocal and this is probably another important point you should remember. I always do first takes, no matter what. I push the button on first takes, whether they're ready or not, because so many first takes have turned out to be the magical take. You can keep trying, keep trying, it just gets worse. You go back to first take, there's something magical about it. Okay, there's problems, fix them. Cover them up, do what you've got to do. But if the vibe is there, that's the important thing. You've got to recognize it and say, that's it. So I recognized on the first take of this vocal that we'd done, I forget which song it was now even, as I say, I left Stevie, we put 50 songs out, I left him with 250 in the can. So 300 songs, you don't remember the stuff. And in fact, you know, I, I, I don't remember a fraction of the stuff that I've recorded. So it's just, you can't keep it up there if you're dealing in the now. So I prefer to deal in the now. With, with, I'm more interested in what's going on in the project I'm working on right now than anything I did in the past. And I don't listen to the old albums. I'm not familiar with them that much, only while I was in the studio. So <clears throat> with this, this, this basic idea that you're trying to produce uh, and get the best possible uh, results out of people at the time, you do these first takes. So I had saved Stevie's first take, and we'd done these 16, 17 more takes on top. We're now out, and I basically Stevie said, no, go over it, but I didn't. I just chose another track and just pulled the fader down. Okay, because my decision was that's too good to, that's good, too good to go over and I've got spare tracks. So why would I do that? <laughs> so yes, he, both, he thinks we've gone over. The end of the day, okay, I said, well, that's it. That's the last track. We've got to decide which ones we're going to, whether we're going to go over anything if you want to do more. Yeah, man, we don't got it. We don't got it. Okay, well, come in. I've got something I want you to listen to. And I brought him into the control room and I put the first track up. And he looks around at me and he says, he kept it. He knew what it was. Right away. Okay? That's the sort of memory he had. He knew what he had done. And he knew, and he, he listened to it, and he turns around and he says, hey man, you're right, that's the one. He recognized that he couldn't do it any better than he'd done it there. Now, <clears throat> as a musician, there are many times on, uh, on Innovisions, on the actual title track here, I'm playing bass. It's the only track on the whole of Stevie's albums, those four albums, that I play bass on, upright bass, because it was an acoustic track. And I played this line, okay. And between the first and second verses, there's a little break where it's just the bass doing that line. And so, of course, Mr. Clever has to go, bomb, ba da da <laughs> I had to put my little twiddly bit in, right? And as soon as I did it, I go, oh, no, why did I do that? Now we're going to have to take it again. But I kept that in a thought. We get to the end of the take, and I turn around to Steve and say, yeah, we've got to do it again. Why, man? Why? That was perfect. I said, well, you know, I, I screwed up in the, in the bass break. You know. No, man, you played that twiddly thing. I really like that. I go, Huh? <laughs> well, if you really like it, uh, all right. Uh, and I, but I had wanted to do it again because I had this idea that 
I, it should be like the way it was written, the way it was, and, and I had twiddly dee did up. But it turned out it, it worked. It, it was something that actually did work, and it was no reason to take again. So I pass this on to you because the, and it's the take that's on the record. So, you know, don't try, you know, technical reasons are not good enough reasons to retake a take that's already got feel and vibe to it. It's more important to have the feel and vibe than it is to be technically perfect or to be musically perfect for that matter. It, you need the overall, how, that, how it comes across, what it does, how it makes you feel. That's what's important, nothing else. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. Almost every year since 1998, we have done the main academy event in one city. But we also do various things around the world throughout the year. In fact, we may just be doing an event near you pretty soon. If you want to find out more, do check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us. It really does help other people discover the podcast. For now, thanks for listening. <laughs>